0: Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. So, like most of you, I am simultaneously mesmerized, horrified, outraged, angered, saddened by the images of the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. One thing that really uh, continues to stick with me is something I heard one of the insurrectionists say, which was, we've gone everywhere. We can't get help from the Supreme Court. We've got to take matters into our own hands. It just caused me to continue to think about the Supreme Court as an institution that no one is happy with all of the time. That's part of why we have a judiciary that is supposed to be dispassionate in the first place. They're supposed to stay out of the fray uh, from our fights and look at it look at these issues and solve those conflicts in a way that accords with constitutional or statutory principles, but in a way that accords with rule of law. So the democracy only survives, frankly, if the people who lose uh, decide that they're going to fight within the parameters that are set by our democracy. But nobody is ever happy with the court. Several weeks before all of this happened, I had a conversation with Emily Bazelon from the New York Times. And Emily is a court watcher. Uh, She pays attention to the institution, to the justices. And we had a conversation about the Supreme Court shortly after Justice Barrett was confirmed and the court issued a decision striking down COVID restrictions in the state of New York. And we talked a bit about the Supreme Court We talked also about the judicial response to uh, the lawsuits by President Trump and his allies, which sought to overturn the election, uh, pointing out that a lot of those lawsuits were heard by judges appointed by President Trump. And we also talked about speech. So this conversation took place a bit before the crisis that we're now in. But so much of what we talked about I think, is pertinent to this moment. So take a listen. Thank you for joining me, Emily. I really appreciate having you here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for asking
0: me. So you are quite the court watcher. You are a Supreme Court observer. Uh, You write a lot and think a lot about the Supreme Court Um, A case that's been in the news a lot recently was the court just prohibited the state of New York from enforcing attendance limits on religious groups, a decision that seemingly seems to be at odds with uh, earlier court cases where the court upheld COVID restrictions and seemed to defer to public health authorities. That was a case that came out of California when Justice Ginsburg was still on the court. The Supreme Court upheld these restrictions. Justice Barrett came on the court uh, filling Justice Ginsburg's seat and struck down COVID restrictions that arose um, out of a different jurisdiction. Is there any difference between these two cases other than the fact of Justice Barrett now being on the High Court?
1: I mean, really, that is the main difference. Um, It's not the only one, but I think it explains the court's different response to New York than it had to California. You know, what's at issue in these cases? These cases pit a claim of religious discrimination, which churches and in this case, New York synagogues were making against the government's usually broad authority to regulate on behalf of public health. And so normally when you have an epidemic, the government has a lot of leeway to set rules that limit people's behavior, right? I mean, in the past, courts have upheld quarantines that were legally enforceable in the United States that go beyond the kind of lockdown orders we've seen during the COVID epidemic. But New York had these very strict limits on the number of people who could be in a house of worship. They limited it to 10 people in certain parts of the city and 25 people in other parts. And so I think the best claim the churches and synagogues had was that those limits, when they were applied to a huge cathedral or a big synagogue that could seat like 1,000 or 400 people, were unreasonable, given that the churches have a kind of extra layer of protection against discrimination because they are religious organizations.
0: So if the main difference, as you say, is that before, when the court considered this question and upheld uh, the restrictions, Justice Ginsburg was on the court, and then Justice Barrett comes on the court, and then they the court takes a seemingly different view, If the main difference is the difference of two justices, what does that say in your view about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court? Supreme Court decisions can't just come and go, can they, depending on who the justice is? I mean, doesn't that sort of put the court right where it shouldn't be in terms of going with the ebb and flow of politics?
1: Well, I think that for a lot of people, it suggests that there's a kind of cloak the court would prefer to wear that would mask law from politics and separate the two and say that judges are not the same as elected officials, that they make um, decisions that are based on more abstract principles, that are not subject to change based on personnel, um, based on switching from Justice Ginsburg to Justice Barrett. But I think that actually law and politics are interwoven, especially in these kind of hotly contested cases in front of the Supreme Court where there is no clear answer. You know, question of what does religious freedom mean? You're not going to find an answer to that in a book. There's no computational machine that's going to spit out the conclusion. Instead, justices are going to um, look to history. They're going to look to precedent. They're going to look at the facts. And they're also going to think about what they think is the most important. They're going to include, whether they admit it or not, their own values in making these decisions. And so I think that is an inevitable part of the court's um, M.O. in these particular kinds of cases, the ones, frankly, that we all pay the most attention to. And I think what you're seeing now is a kind of more obvious expression of that aspect, that kind of political aspect of the court's work.
0: So you've written about this Supreme Court not being emblematic or not really being representative of the country, uh, something that you pointed out in one of your pieces GOP presidents, Republican presidents, have picked six of the last 10 Supreme Court justices, even though what we've seen in elections is that uh, Republican presidents have lost the popular vote in six out of the last seven presidential elections. So what if the response to that is simply, so what? Uh, the Supreme Court was never really intended to be a representative body, was it? I mean, the Supreme Court exists as a counter uh, to majoritarian impulses. So so what if it's not representative of the country? Well, I
1: think you're totally right. I mean, the structure of the Constitution does not demand that Supreme Court vacancies be filled in a kind of even-handed manner from president to president, right? I mean, we could have, for example, staggered 18-year terms, which applied over time would mean that each president gets two Supreme Court appointments during his or her first term. And that's just not the structure we have. It is also true, however, that there have been a few moments in the Supreme Court's history in which it has had um, a very conservative and even reactionary approach that has really prioritized big corporations and the interests of wealthy people over workers and regular people, the rest of us. And those points of tension have caused a great deal of trouble for the court, right? In the end, the court does not have an army. It has to rely on the elected branches and on we, the people, to enforce its orders and abide by its orders. And so you have these previous moments in American history where you see the justices go right up to the line of what the country will tolerate and then back down because it really in the end is a kind of crisis of legitimacy when the court goes too far away from public will in this way that is really entrenching the minority rule of the wealthy and the powerful.
0: And you've written about that, too. You've written about times where other institutions have pushed back. I mean, we're having a lot of there's a lot of public uh, conversation now about whether or not a Democratic Senate should there be a Democratic Senate uh, would increase the number of justices, whether or not President Biden uh, would increase the number of justices. He's indicated that he wouldn't do that. But you have written about times where other institutions have said to the Supreme Court, hold on, we haven't always had nine justices. Can you tell us a little bit about Reconstruction and how we ended up with nine and when and another moment in history uh, where Congress said to the Supreme Court, we're not going to let you get involved here because we don't trust you. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So after the Civil War, there was this struggle during Reconstruction over whether the Supreme Court was going to respect the new rights of newly freed um, Black people and whether they were going to uphold, um, you know, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, or I shouldn't say uphold the Constitution, but interpret it in a way that would really give meaning to those rights how far the um, goals of freedom and equality the court was going to sign on to. And at the time post of a war, this is a court that is mostly made up of Democrats, which means something different than it does now, because the Democrats are the folks who opposed Abraham Lincoln and were pro-secession. And because of fears that the court was not going to really allow this new country to knit itself back together with broad protections for equality, Congress and the president changed the size of the Supreme Court. It actually changed three or four times in the 1860s from six to nine to seven to 10 at different moments. So you see there a willingness of Congress to say, This is not a fixed number, and if we're concerned about the way in which the court may undermine our efforts to improve this democracy, these kind of structural reforms we have in mind, we're gonna change the court. And this is, again, something that happens during the New Deal. Actually, more famously, you know, FDR at first is really frustrated by a very conservative Supreme Court's refusal to uphold key pillars of the New Deal. He starts talking about court packing, We think of that now as kind of like a dirty, bad word, but actually when FDR started talking about it, it seems like it was pretty popular across the country. We don't really have polling, but there wasn't like widespread outcry on behalf of the Supreme Court. And what happened was that FDR never went through with his threat to change the size of the court because the justices backed down. One of them, um, Justice Owen Roberts, famously changed his vote in a subsequent New Deal case. And then a whole bunch of people retired. And so FDR got to make a lot of appointments and change what the personnel of the court looked like instead of actually changing its size.
0: Well, and you also mentioned Reconstruction. I mean, that was a situation where Congress took the power to adjudicate away from the Supreme Court. They simply said, we don't want you in this, to make a mess, uh, frankly, because they didn't trust the Supreme Court to uphold where the country was going in terms of recognizing the humanity of African-American people. So if you could read the tea leaves, uh, if you care to, do you see or do you anticipate any pushback now against this current Supreme Court? Do you think that notwithstanding the fact that it's a political bad word these days to say, let's increase the number of justices, do you think that might happen? Do you see any room uh, for that happening? Well, if you
1: see this as a kind of ongoing chess match with Congress and the president and the court, it's the court's move. And what I mean by that is that if the court starts issuing decisions that are very dramatic, hugely change rights that Americans have come to depend on. I'm thinking of the constitutional right to access to abortion or the ability of states to pass laws that limit gun possession and gun ownership. You might see a lot of feeling in the country that this is a small minority of unelected people who are having a really dramatic effect on their lives and they're going to want something to change. I think the biggest test for the court will be if um, there's a new... Consensus in the country, a real move toward progressive um, ideas, and you have a major piece of social legislation pass, right? Something like the New Deal or Medicare or Social Security, even beyond the Affordable Care Act. If the court were to strike a law like that down, it would really be saying that the democracy is not allowed to move in a progressive direction in a major way. And then I think there would be people on the streets, there would be a real outcry and momentum toward changing the number of justices in the way you're describing. What I wonder, though, is whether the justices, the conservatives will actually be um, very aware of that danger. And so they will take other steps that are quite corrosive (laughs) in terms of progressive values or voting rights, um, democratic participation, but that don't whip people up into really understanding what the stakes are. And so we have a court that moves the law and the country to the right, but in a way that doesn't completely threaten the whole legitimacy of the court itself.
0: So would it be fair to say that you think it more likely for there to be a lot of small, subtle attacks on things like voting rights as opposed to something big and dramatic like overturning Roe v. Wade? Do you think that those sort of incremental movement is more likely
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not sure because there are a few justices who really seem to want to swing for the fences. Um, (laughs) And so if they get their way, then that could happen. And we have this brand new justice, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and I don't really know yet. None none of us really know how she's going to fit into the picture and how she might change things. But I do think that um, if you want to preserve your power in the longer run as this conservative majority, it would be smarter to make incremental decisions than to, you know, next year overturn Roe versus Wade and create this huge headline and all of this um, protest against what you're doing.
0: Speaking to that point about institutional legitimacy, the way that we have seen even Trump appointed judges react to some of the lawsuits in which uh, the president and his allies have sought to overturn uh, certain election results. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, there's a lot of criticism of uh, the court and there's a lot of criticism of judicial institutions. But at the same time, we see people who essentially, you know, have been hired by a president and they're like, look, we are not here to do your bidding. Elections are to be decided by the people. That's what we saw come out of the Third Circuit with Judge Bebas. What do you think that these decisions are doing now in terms of Uh, cementing the legitimacy of the court, or at least taking it out of the realm of politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and a great way to frame what I was talking about before. So what you have here are a series of really incredibly weak lawsuits by the Trump campaign, lawsuits that you know, no decent worth his or her salt Republican lawyer was willing to sign on to. Um, you know, the the folks from the Republican National Committee and the campaign lawyers for Trump, like they are not signing these briefs. Neither are law firms like Jones Day and Porter Wright that were in on the initial litigation. Instead, you have Rudy Giuliani and uh, a couple of other people who are really saying things out loud in court that are just, they just have zero evidence for. And in fact, should know to be false. So it's kind of a low bar to say, OK, you have a bunch of judges, and some of them are appointed by President Trump himself, but they're passing on these lawsuits. They're saying like, no, are you kidding? You didn't bring us any evidence. And they're being quite scathing about it. I do think it's really important. And there was a, some tiny chance that you know the rule of law was so threatened in the United States of America that these lawsuits were going to go somewhere. So I don't mean to like dismiss the significance of it, but as a measure of how um, of the quality of Trump's appointees to the bench and what other kinds of decisions they might make in a different context, I don't think it's very meaningful at all. Um, another example of this is the current challenge to the Affordable Care Act. So when Justice Barrett was um, testifying in front of the Senate, Democrats talked a lot about her as a threat to continuing the ACA. But the thing is the lawsuit that is challenging the ACA is risible. Uh, It's risible because of whether the plaintiffs have standing, which is kind of boring. It's also risible because even if you think that the plaintiffs are correct and the individual mandate is not a tax, and so it should be struck down, the rest of the law should be able to stay in place because of this basic idea, which I know you know about. called the doctrine of severability, where if you have a huge law and one part of it falls and the rest of it can still stand, you don't strike down the whole law. So despite all of the Concern that Justice Barrett was going to vote to strike down the law, at oral argument, it was pretty clear there are not five votes to strike down this law because Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts, who are a kind of very conservative but sort of like swing vote-ish contingent right now in the court, they said, oh, you know, it's pretty obvious that this is severable. So I think, again, it's like a low bar. <laughs> it doesn't say that much when you look at how much that the court would have to distort um, previous decisions and kind of entrenched legal principles in order to strike down the whole ACA. Um, but it is true that the ACA is likely to survive. That is not the hill it seems like the conservatives of the court want to die on right now.
0: So let's just talk for a moment also about speech and free speech. Uh, You've written about that extensively. You questioned whether the American system of ensuring free speech is keeping us free. And I bring this up now because, you know, it's interesting. We talk about what's happening in the courts uh, with some of the Trump lawsuits as opposed to what people say in media. Like when you go to court, court is where the rubber hits the road. Regardless of who the judge is, uh, any judge with any credibility should be able to look at a lawsuit where there's no evidence and say this isn't going forward. The world outside of court is different, but you're a journalist. You know how important free speech is. You know, you're um, with the New York Times, which has had its own internal free speech controversies when uh, Bennett resigned after uh, the publication of the Tom Cotton op-ed. What's your suggestion for doing better? How do we do better while still keeping our vibrant, very alive discourse going? Don't we have to just kind of endure a lot of nonsense like we always have? We
1: definitely are going to endure a lot of nonsense, like no matter what. Um, So here's the uh, kind of thread to pull on to think about these questions. I think we need to pay more attention to the influence of big moneyed interests in generating our debate. And I'm talking in particular about the right-wing media empire that Rupert Murdoch has created in the United States, and then also in Australia and the United Kingdom. And I'm also talking about the social media platforms, which are owned, let's just like take Mark Zuckerberg, the owner and founder of Facebook, as an example of that. What you have, and now I'm drawing on the research of a Harvard professor named Yochai Benkler, um, you have this kind of symbiotic mutual amplification going on where Fox News often spews lots of falsehoods um, as part of its coverage, uh, kind of claiming to look like a fact check kind of media organization, but not actually doing that. And then you have Facebook amplifying a lot of Fox posts and the whole conservative. Um, media personality that spins out of Fox. And you have them doing that in a way that I think looks to a lot of Facebook users neutral, right? Like it's just popping up on your Facebook news feed. So why is it any different than something that comes from NPR CNN or the New York Times? In fact, what's happening is that Facebook is feeding you through its algorithm what it thinks is going to pop and go viral. So that's about Facebook's bottom line. It's kind of the opposite about. Any kind of like quality based sourcing of authority, which is something, by the way, that we get on Google all the time. Like when you go on Google and you have a search, you don't get like the lying stuff at the top because Google doesn't think that's like a reliable way to order the research results it's giving you. And in fact, you saw social media platforms like Facebook really try to address disinformation when coronavirus started. I don't know about you, but I remember in March trying to look for things on Facebook or on other platforms. And if they were false, just literally couldn't find them because they were suppressed by the algorithm. And in fact, Facebook did that for a few days after the election. When you look at the top 10 list for the posts that get the most engagement, and that means like likes and shares and comments on Facebook, it was dominated for the past year by, very right wing voices um, that are kind of fringe and by like Trump and his kids. But then on like November 4th and 5th, all of a sudden it was full of CNN and NPR. And what happened was that Facebook got really nervous about the way in which Trump was trying to undermine the integrity of the election and they changed their algorithm for a couple of days. But then they decided like, no, we liked it better with that old algorithm that frankly made us more money. And so we're going back to that. And Facebook claims to have these very libertarian pro-free speech principles when it makes that kind of decision. But in fact, there's no no neutral algorithm here, right? It's all about the choices that are being made in a way that I think most of us like, it's pretty hidden. And so we don't see those influences on us and the news we consume, even though it has a real impact on how quickly disinformation travels and how much people encounter it in a way that makes it seem
0: credible. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that the issue is not so much how do we manage this free marketplace of ideas? It's more about how do we make sure that when we go into the marketplace of ideas, someone isn't stuffing our grocery baskets with canned vegetables as opposed to fresh produce. Not that I'm making any value judgments about the information. Uh, (laughs) Never. Emily Bazelon, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tanya. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: Take care. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.